0: glad to meet everybody and I'll give an overview of what I'm going to talk about and then jump into the details. So I'll start by talking about context. I guess I'll start by how I met Matthew. I'll talk about myself a little bit more background than what he described. Then I'll talk about what I've done that led him to invite me to speak here. I'll talk about the details of what I've done. And then after that, I'll talk about the results, not just what I did, but what that's led to. And I'll close with a bit of the challenges that I face going forward. A couple images to view Somehow I got an email for one of your meetings. I went to it and no one was there and it had been postponed unknown to me, but Matthew was there and we ended up speaking for a while. How long did we speak to the first time? I mm-hmm. don't quite a bit. Yeah. It's about 45 minutes. Yeah. And I think we hit on a lot of points and he said, after talking a bit, why don't you come speak for context? This is going to sound a little from the side, but there's a video online, which I think is one of my favorite videos online. It's of LeBron James, the basketball player. He's practicing just the basics. It's him with a coach. And all he's doing is practicing some jump shots, doing some stretching exercises, doing some strength exercises. In some sense, it's a very boring video because all he's doing is practicing the basics and it's not really that exciting. For those who aren't into basketball, I've actually found very similar videos in lots of other areas, people practicing piano or practicing singing, or practicing dancing or almost anything where there's performance. Connected to it, but I'll stick with LeBron because I like basketball, and hopefully there aren't Knicks fans that are having too much of a problem with that. Another video I've seen is of LeBron James playing, like in a a championship game. He's running down the court, dribbling the ball. At one point, he jumps up, and he's going to pass it to another player. But in the time when he jumps up, the defense gets on the other player, and so he's suddenly in the air, and there's no one for him to pass the ball to. If he lands, it's going to be a turnover. So he's in the air; he's got the time to land to figure out what to do, but he can't pass it to anyone, and he can't hold on to it, and he can't dribble again either. He throws the ball against the backboard, catches his own rebound, and dunks it. And it's one of the most amazing shots. The next day, they interview all these basketball players, and they're like, that's an amazing shot. But no one does that, not in a championship game. That's like when you show off on on courts. The reason I mention it is that I guarantee that they never practiced. What should we do when he's drilling down the court, jumps up in the air, and suddenly doesn't have anyone to pass it to? What actually enables such amazing play to happen is practicing the basics. The same thing happens, a musician goes up and the the instrument isn't what it's supposed to be. They figure it out on the fly. What makes that possible is practicing the basics. What I'm talking today about is practicing the basics and acting sustainably. Another piece of context is when I'm talking about what I'm practicing. There's a Venn diagram that I think of how to influence other people and oneself to live more sustainably. So the Venn diagram is to have experience leading. It's very useful to have experience leading in order to lead. Lots of people have such experience. It's very useful to have experience in science. People who have experience leading, but not experience science will often tend to lead people in the area of sustainability to do things that sound great, but don't actually work because science is not trivial. People who have experience in science, but not experience leading often will give people facts and numbers in the expectation or hope that they'll know what to do. And they often don't know what to do. It often doesn't lead people to act or to act effectively. Now, there's a lot of people who have experience leading and experience in science. Al Gore Leonardo DiCaprio have some experience in these areas, I would think, I hope. Now, there's a third, which is experience living sustainably. There are not many people, in my experience, who have experienced living sustainably. And I believe it's virtually impossible to lead someone to do something that the person leading does the opposite of. And there aren't a lot of people who have experience in all three areas. Even Greta, I believe she knows the science pretty well. I believe she has experience living sustainably. But at about 20 years old, she doesn't have a whole lot of experience leading. This area in here is an area where I try to get to I have experience leading, I teach, I coach, I've run companies, I have experience in science, I have the PhD, and I'm going to talk today about experience living sustainably. I believe it's essential. What I'm talking about is practicing the basics. You'll hear it, I'm describing a process that's a mindset shift that leads to continual improvement of practicing and practicing and practicing and getting to further and further stages that I don't think you can get to in one fell swoop. You have to practice and learn from each stage in order to get to the next stage. When I get to a level of self-mastery and skill, What I get is joy and fun and freedom. What I'm not going to talk about today, which is I'm happy to talk about on another occasion. And these are two separate things that are very closely related. I'm going to talk today about practice and deliberate practice, but I'm not going to be talking about what it leads to, which is leading others. That's a separate thing. That's like the equivalent of playing on stage of playing on the court. I'm not going to talk about leading others, although this is what I'm building to. I'm not going to talk about, I think you guys probably get why pollution matters. Not everyone would agree that the globe is warming or the plastic is an issue, but I'm taking for granted that people here don't need that. If so, I can talk about that afterward. So that's the context. A bit about me, when all of what I'm going to talk about began about 10 years ago, at that point, I had a PhD, I had an MBA, I started a company. I was also a vegetarian. I don't remember a time in my life when I didn't know about the problems with pollution, the problems with litter, the problems with global warming, that sea levels were rising, as far as I know, that's always been the case from that. I knew that that was happening, but I also didn't act meaningfully. I mean, I'd take the bus instead of take a taxi, but generally I would think that change on the scale that was necessary, governments and corporations were the only ones that could do it. Individual action wouldn't really matter. You know, I would think that if we didn't keep the economy going, it could collapse. So I, I thought, what could I do? I couldn't really do much about it. So I didn't really act up until recently, about 10 years ago. And another thing that I think is important is something about how I grew up. I'll tell you about a conversation I had with my little sister a little while ago, a couple of days ago, actually. She and her husband met during the Peace Corps in Morocco, destitute area. After the Peace Corps, they both joined the State Department and worked in several places. They learned Arabic. So some of the places that my sister worked were Syria, Lebanon, where she, to get around Lebanon, she had to be sorted in the State Department by a cadre of Marines. Later in Baghdad, she was there. She could only be in the green zone. Her husband knew about this. And sometime not too long ago, she went to Rockland Street, which is where my mom lived after the divorce. And it was a very economically depressed area. And knowing that she'd been in these war tone areas, when she took him to Rockland Street, he was shocked. You guys lived here? This is, how did you get out? How could this have happened? I mentioned this, I'm not gonna go into the details about Rockland Street, but accessibility has always been very important to me. I don't like to do things that are not available to everybody. Either I want things to be available or increasing accessibility to people who can't do the things I mean, now I have degrees and things like that. Many things are much more accessible to me now, but that has not always been the case. I don't like to do things that are not increasing accessibility or accessible to everybody there. So that's a bit about me. Now I want to talk about four steps that I took that to me, looking at the times that I did each one, I want to make very clear that before I did each of these steps, I had no expectation that I thought I could do any of them. I thought each was impossible. And I thought that each would lead to deprivation and sacrifice. I really felt I was taking one for the team, but it really had to be done. But I really thought it was really kind of pointless. Looking back now, I realized that these were stages of continual improvement that each one enabled the next one to reach to places that I'm pleasantly surprised to find that I I very much enjoy. And also in my experience, each of the stages, less than the later ones, but at the beginning, I would analyze and plan to figure out how to do each of these things. I learned that analyzing and planning kept delaying action, only actually doing the things led to any results at all. So this changed my outlook against too much analyzing and planning, especially if I want to lead people to do things like live more sustainably. And I have not tried it myself. I feel I don't know really what I'm talking about, especially now that I've learned it so much. So the four steps began about 10 years ago. I noticed that my garbage, I just looked down in my kitchen and I noticed that most of my garbage came from food packaging. As I mentioned, I thought at the time individual action wouldn't really matter. My garbage, I mean, there was a lot of it, more than I really had noticed, but I didn't think that what I would do would make much of a difference. But I also thought, you know, this garbage will end up in someone's world, maybe not now, but somewhere over the next 500 years in in the time it takes the plastic to break down. If I can't change the world, I can still take responsibility for my effects on others. I don't want to pollute other people. And I had this idea to challenge myself to see if I could go for a week without buying any packaged food. Living in, in Manhattan, I figured, why would I do that? There are people who train their whole lives to become chefs. I can get the cuisine of the world all around here. I've grew up learning how to cook, but not from scratch. So i would never done that before. At that point, I did start analyzing, like what would I do on day one? What would I do on day two, three, day two, day three? How would I do this? After six months of analyzing and planning, one day I just said, I'm not going to die. I'm just going to start right now. I'll figure it out as I go. Long story short, I actually made it two and a half weeks the first time, not buying any packaged food. There's actually a moment that's worth talking about. I allowed myself to finish packaged food that was in my cupboards and in my fridge. One day I went to the store because I needed food. Like on autopilot, I went to the shelf where I would normally start shopping. And for the first time in my life, instead of seeing the food, I saw the packaging around it, the bottles, the boxes, the jars, the cans, the rubber bands, the stickers. And it hit me that I didn't know how to buy food. I didn't know how to cook or eat without hurting other people, which is to say I didn't know how to live without hurting people. This was a very humbling moment that led to a lot of soul searching because at this point I had all these degrees and I couldn't live without hurting people. I could go into that moment, but what ended up happening was I looked down at the end of the aisle was the produce aisle, the next over. And I realized, okay, I I can only buy produce. And by that point, there was a bulk section in that store. And I allowed myself, if I brought my own bag, I would fill those bags up. And to that point I'd bought from the bulk section, nuts and and dried fruit. But for the first time in my life, I bought dried legumes, beans. I had no idea how to cook them. So I'm not really proud of this, but for the first time in my life, in my forties, I boiled beans on the stove. That's what ended up making it through two and a half weeks. Then I found, even within that time, I found that some of the cooking was not bad. So I decided to keep going, not at zero, but at minimal packaging. And I made it to, there's six months of pretty bland food, which is to say I was steaming a lot of vegetables, putting them over over legumes or rice with salt and pepper. And it wasn't really particularly good, but it wasn't polluting much. Over that six months, I I started experimenting with different things. And eventually I started making, food that I considered really delicious to the point where I invite people over. And long-term, I would do corporate events on sustainability where I would cook my famous no-packaging vegan stews. Then I'd go to the Bronx and Harlem and in Manhattan and lead workshops because I found that meals were very cheap, very quick and easy to make. I found that I could cook faster when I was in a hurry or longer when I had people over and I wanted to make it a social event. So this was a tremendously joyful experience it led me to wonder a couple things. One of them was before I started, I thought this was going to be deprivation and sacrifice. With practice, I ended up enjoying it. Why did I think that I would not like unpackaged food? Why would I not like cooking from scratch? Why did I think it was going to take so long? And, and I realized I'd grown up learning these things. And I asked myself, might there be other things that I think living without would be terrible, would be deprivation and sacrifice? I hit on, this a couple of years later, I hit on flying and I thought to myself, could I challenge myself to go for without flying for some time a week? That's not enough. A month. That's not enough. And I thought, could I go for a year without flying? And I don't know about you, but I was like, Oh, how could I like, I have family around the world and I have, um, I have to make a living and my job depends on it. And I also think to be a citizen in society, I, I felt I needed to fly. Lots of people tell me, Josh, maybe you could do that, but I can't. And everything that they say after that is always something that was a challenge for me as well. Nonetheless, I decided it worked before, maybe it'll work now. So I committed to going for one year without flying. All sorts of things right off the bat, family events that I couldn't go to, job events that I couldn't go to. But within a couple months, within something like three months, all the things that I got from flying, I found that I could get without flying. After a few months, I thought maybe I should go for another year. So that was 2016. And I've not flown since. That was another thing where I thought it would be impossible. I thought it would be a, a terrible idea, but something I had to try. And when I actually committed and tried, it was a joyful experience. One time I was reading this article totally by chance. It was focusing on Vietnam, but it was talking about how other most of the rest of the world, or a lot of the rest of the world, doesn't refrigerate as much as we do. They ferment, they use fresh ingredients. I'm sitting there reading the article and I look over at my fridge and I'm thinking, that's the biggest source of pollution that I have right now. I wonder if I could go without using the refrigerator. And I started thinking, what would I do? Can I learn how to ferment? Will that work? What would I do with this? What would I do with that? I knew from experience quit with the analyzing planning six months go by. just go over. And I walked over and I just unplugged the fridge right then and there without any planning whatsoever, telling myself the time that this stuff in the fridge is going to melt. I have to eat it or figure out what to do with it. And that time I learned, I started to ferment. I just fermented a bit before that. This was a year and a half ago. And I made it three months that time. This was 2019 into 2020. It was the winter. And one of the things I did was I put stuff on the windowsills, not the tactics that you use in Vietnam, which is a hot country where you do fermentation, but I'd put stuff on the window in the winter and that would keep it cool buying fresh ingredients. I found that I could live without the fridge for three months. The following winter, I started a little bit earlier and went a little bit longer based on my experience. And I made it six months. Then the next winter, which was this last winter, actually it was in the fall. I, I unplugged it in September. And so now I, I believe if I've counted right, I'm in my ninth month of my refrigerator being unplugged. Amazingly, my food is fresher than ever. I, normally I think of a, a fridge as something to keep things fresh, but it'll keep one thing fresh. But systemically, I find that it forces me without the fridge to have to cook differently. For that matter, it connects with the not flying. When I think of of the reasons I I flew and a lot of people fly, I think is to experience other cultures. If people want me to make the connection more tightly, I I can, but forcing myself to eat locally, what grows on farms here and meeting the farmers and so forth, in my experience, connects me more with people in other cultures who are eating what they have locally, than flying there and going there and spending a bit of time there or eating at a restaurant, an Americanized restaurant of that version. I feel that these things are complementing themselves very well. That's the third thing that I did that was continual improvement. Each one, I would never have expected to get to the second without the first and the third without the second. The next one is actually a couple of weeks old. Well, it started last year. With my refrigerator off, I noticed that my electric bills were very low. There's one part that I can't change. It's roughly 20 bucks that I have to pay just to be connected. Then there's the amount that I pay for the electricity that I use. My record low so far is 96 cents. And that's pretty low. And I started thinking, I wonder if I could get to zero. Could I go off grid in Manhattan? even for a month. And so I set this challenge for myself and I I wondered how I could do it if I could. So I go on Craigslist and I looked in the use section and I find a battery that can be solar powered. And then eventually after a couple more months, I find some solar panels that are designed to be for camping. So they're portable. Here's the the battery pack that I'm actually running this off of right now. The solar panels are over there. I'm not going to show them to you. The battery pack, I tested it with my pressure cooker and I found that it could cook one load of my famous no packaging vegan stew, which is like my staple. And I've realized I can do this. I can pull this off. It's actually powering the light over here. So a couple of weeks ago, I needed to get the battery fixed, actually. So the battery came back from the manufacturer to test this new battery. I made one of the stews and I was thinking to myself, I wonder when I'll try for the month disconnected from the grid. I just impromptu said, I guess, starting right now. So it's now Wednesday. So I'm halfway through the third week being off the grid. So I've I've actually gone to the circuit. Uh, to the whole apartment and turned off the whole circuit. There's been no power to my apartment for two and a half weeks. I'm beginning to see this one as my kitty hawk moment, which is to say like when the Wright brothers first got flight. I can't imagine that they could have foreseen a 747 or reaching the moon. Nonetheless, it was quite a feat. That's how I feel that that this moment has been. I really did not expect to reach any of these things or succeed at any of them. So what are the results? Let me show you this slide. Do you see Josh Spodak's ecological footprint? Just yes. Sure. Okay, great. This shows my I this is from an online calculator. There's plenty of other calculators that I've tried and basically the same effect. This was from the Global Footprint Network, which is not just carbon but all sorts of other pollutions. So if everybody lived as I did in 2016, we'd need 4.3 earths to sustain that. So that's not sustainable. At that time, the US average, if everybody on the planet lived as the average American did, we would need 5 earths to cover that. Living in New York without a car, vegetarian, no kids, I was a bit below average. I flew around more than average at that time. So I was pretty close to the US average. By comparison, the world average was down at 1.7. So that's also unsustainable. US is roughly triple or world average is roughly a third of the US average. I think that a lot of people would look at this and think a couple things. One is that I think most Americans would say, it's not fair that we have, and they don't, we should bring them up to here. But this is the ecological footprint that confuses amount of pollution with quality of life. It's not necessarily the case that increased pollution improves quality of life. I think that a lot of Americans would look at this, and I can't speak for anyone else, but this is my my guess, is that I think we would think that the world would look at us with envy. I would guess a couple of decades ago, they probably would, but with the headlines of today, I think a lot of people here look at the US with fear of pollution. When I went back to the site after two and a half years, after three years, I found when I filled out the questionnaire in 2018, this is after not flying, and a couple other changes, that my footprint was, if everybody lived as I did, we'd need a third of an earth. So I dropped 90% in under three years. This was all purely joyful experience. I expected it to be challenging and hard, but it was actually a joyful experience. And to my view, improved my life. I'm not saying everybody can do exactly what I did, but I will point out, I was already a vegetarian. I already didn't have a car. I already am not a father. The three areas that people can decrease their footprint the most were not available to me. So there are a lot of things that other people could do a lot more easily. If I draw this line across here, this green here is, loosely speaking, it's an upper limit on what you really need to live. And all the red part here is, to my view, not necessarily improving life. So that's one output of this. Also, hopefully you guys can see it. Since I compost, my garbage is dry and I put it in this canvas bag. Sometimes I ask people to guess how long. When that fills up, I go down to the end of the hall and empty my garbage into the trash chute. At the beginning, I would empty my garbage roughly once a week with practice, it came to once every other week, once every month, once every two months. So the last time I emptied that was Christmas day, 2019. On June 25th, it will be exactly two and a half years on that load. I've been thinking about emptying it at that point, but now I have all these bags that um, my neighbors throw away, like Fresh Direct bags, which are a bit bigger. And I'm thinking about emptying that into the Fresh Direct bag, not throwing it out, keeping it going maybe five years or something like that. That's where I am in terms of that waste. It's also led to a podcast. The podcast. This Sustainable Life, where I bring on leaders from lots of different areas, and I walk them through a process to, to share their values on sustainability and act on them. I've had four TEDx talks on sustainability leadership. I'm beginning a practice of leading people, especially other leaders, to act sustainably in a way that gets their communities to act as well. One case, I, I can't show this picture because this picture I haven't gotten permission from him yet, but there's a, an executive at an oil company, one of the most polluting companies in the world that I've been working with. He showed this picture of his daughter he was walking out with her and I'd done this process with him to lead him through this sustainability uh, leadership process. His daughter is now picking up litter all the time, as I do, partly led, led through him to her. It's this picture of her holding a piece of garbage that she picked up because she likes it. She enjoys it. And he's using that picture to talk to other executives, to say, look at, we, we, at what we can do, how much this can be a joyful experience, not deprivation sacrifice. It's deeply heartwarming for me to see something like that. I hope I've given enough context for for that to make sense. Another big effect internally is mentally. I've gotten a great mental freedom. Freedom from these emotions like hopelessness and helplessness, feeling twisted up inside when I knew that I was doing things that would pollute, but telling myself that there's nothing I could do about it, knowing that I could do something about it. Insecurity, capitulation, feelings of guilt and shame. Look, I still pollute. I'm not living sustainably. I mean, this is garbage and it's going to be in the world for a long, long time. But I didn't go into detail of like what's in there, but if you like, and you want me to talk about what's in there, I'm I'm happy to show you my garbage. Oh, I should also show, um, I don't know if you can see over there, I put my recycling. So the big tall box on the left is my paper recycling. The two boxes on the right are the metal, plastic, and glass. They're not quite two and a half years. I think there's something like two years, maybe one and a half years with the recycling. By the way, I don't try to hide stuff. Like if I, I did a bike ride a little while ago and at the end of the ride, they gave out sandwiches and I, I took a sandwich. Without thinking about it, I took a bite into it and I realized it was wrapped in paper. And I was like, oh crap, this paper, I don't know if it's recyclable. I don't know if it's compostable. So that piece of paper is in here. I don't try to hide things. I don't try to make it look like little. I try to take if I produce a piece of garbage somewhere else, I take it home with me and put it in here. Same with recycling. Going back to my mental results is that I feel a much stronger sense of of personal mastery, of, of having mastered a set of skills, not totally mastered, but pretty good about connecting with people more, the farmers that I grow the food from on a physical level, my diet has improved. As I do more and more sustainable things and I consume power less and less, I tend to do things like exercise, learning to sing, cultural things, definitely reading a lot more, waking up earlier in order to read by sunlight in the, instead of turning lights on because I'm conserving power more. Because I have to, because I have to keep track of it. Oh, there's a really fun thing that this, this battery, it shows right now I'm drawing 37 watts. I have two more hours. It's at 13%. So I have to think to myself, will I have enough juice to do my stuff tomorrow, or am I gonna to have to go upstairs? I live on the fourth floor, it's a 15 story building, so the, the roof is 11 flights up and down. If I wanna put it up there and leave it there, it takes about four hours to charge. I have to go up, come back down, go up, come back down. So I'm climbing up a lot of stairs during this particular month. I'm not, this is what happens when you just wing it just to see what happens. Somewhere down the road, I'd prefer to have something permanently installed, but this is how I find out my co op board wouldn't go for it, but actually the co op is very interested in it now. I'm saving money. I'm learning skills like cooking and fermenting, shopping at farmers markets, meeting the farmers by going to the same stands all the time. I get a lot of free vegetables because I get to know them. Can't beat free. My apartment is cleaner. My neighborhood is a bit cleaner. I pick up litter every day. I actually have physically more space in my apartment. I host people, well, pre pandemic, I hosted people a lot more. And when I'd host people for dinners, as opposed to going to a restaurant, I could feed. Five people for less than I would pay for just myself if we went to a restaurant and it's not really loud. I don't have a, the, the waiter isn't coming over and trying to get us out in order to get the next table in. I'm living more deliberately. I'm reading more, I'm scrolling and spending time online less. The podcast has led to connections in many different areas of leaders in lots of different areas. To this group, I'll mention Eric Adams has been on my podcast twice, Catherine Garcia has been on. Eric Botcher has been on when he is... Uh, I, I presume you know who these people are. Ask me if you don't. Eric Botcher is my city council representative. As part of his campaign, he organized a lot of trash cleanups and I went to all of them. I think I, maybe I missed one or two if I was away, but he and I picked up litter together in February when almost no one else came out. Brad Hoyleman has been on the podcast. If you guys know Rit Argawala, who's the current chief climate officer, he has not been on the podcast yet, but we talk about this stuff. I think I mentioned the connections to other cultures as well as human past, to farmers, to hunters and gatherers, also to local cuisine. I I forage now, and I found out places to get really cool stuff within the city. I understand science and nature in a new way, to me, a much better way. I mean, and I say this having having earned a PhD, my connection to nature is deeper now, and my understanding is growing in ways I, I could not have anticipated. And the word to describe it most is there's much greater beauty of nature in my life now visually, auditorily, taste, smell, touch. I'm also becoming more aware of human blindness or a willingness, a tolerance to do things that we know will hurt others, but we find ways to excuse it. This has led to my new book. The agent is taking it. to. We're getting very positive feedback from publishers. So the new book on sustainability leadership begins with a model of an addiction model of how we are addicted. And I don't mean by analogy or metaphor. I mean, addicted in a, in a medical definition sense. I'm not a medical doctor or a psychiatrist, but I believe that we will in, in, in time professionally define what our relationship with a lot of things that pollute as addiction, that we are choosing things that hurt ourselves in the long run for short-term reward, and we find ourselves unable to stop. That's roughly speaking a definition of addiction. And that's clarified the problem for me. Yes, it's important to understand science more. Yes, it's important to develop technologies that can make things more efficient, but at root, it's people, our behavior, driven by our beliefs, our role models, our systems, in short, our culture. If we don't change our culture, but we simply, say, change our technology, we will keep getting the same results, actually more efficiently. If we want to change the results, I believe that of the many things we have to do, one thing that I don't see people doing, and that what I'm working on, is I believe we have to change our culture, our beliefs, our role models, our systems. So far, we've generally looked to scientists educators, journalists, politicians, to guide what we do next. These things are critically important. I lumped them under management, working with measurable things, very, very important. But management without leadership, I don't think you can change a culture. Leadership in the style of Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, uh, in sports, John Wooden, in politics of the military, Eisenhower, and, and many, many other role models and effective leaders that we could learn from. This is what is guiding me, is to bring leadership to sustainability. This is where I am right now. There's one big challenge I face going forward. Many people misunderstand what I'm doing. They look at what I'm doing and they continually tell me what you're doing doesn't, it's just one person. They're not getting that it's my goal is to lead others, to create leaders, to create leaders, to create leaders. So I don't try to explain to everybody how living by my values is necessary, but not sufficient to lead others. Separately, I'm also leading others. That would be a different talk. But as I said, I feel like I'm at a Kitty Hawk moment right here like the Wright brothers when they first flew, there's great potential ahead of living much more sustainably, most of all, joyfully sustainably. So I hope I didn't go on too long, but this is what I wanted to share and, and Matthew invited to speak about. I'm happy to take questions. I'm not sure if you up along the way in the chat. Thank you, Josh. That was, uh, I think, fascinating and very informative. And I want to open the floor up now to members of the, of the committee and, and guests for some questions. Anne-Marie Cunningham, I think you have uh, the first question.
1: Thank you very much, Josh. I was curious to hear more about what you have done instead of flying. How
0: do you do necessary travel? That's a big question that I get a lot. And there's a couple things. One is I've taken vacations by bicycle. So I've gone to parks and I've camped and things like that. The, I mean, the biggest thing is what do I travel for? What are the values that I'm trying to get? And can I get them otherwise? many of the things that I believed that I needed to travel, I've been able to get without traveling. I'm sorry, without flying. Exploring other cultures. For me, exploring other cultures is very important to me. It's part of the reason I live in New York City. There's a lot of cultures in New York City. I can take the subway and get to a lot of other cultures. I'm also finding increasingly, I'm learning more and more from people nearby me. I'm also, I'm finding that there's a lot of middle steps here. I'm finding that there's a lot of travel is driven by craving. When the detoxification goes, when the craving passes, I don't need to travel to find all these other things. I should mention that before 2016, I'd been to six continents, mostly by flying, a couple dozen countries, North Korea a couple times. One could say, well, maybe you got all the travel you needed, all the flying you needed, and others still need that. I can't argue against that, but I can tell you that I wish I'd stopped flying earlier. Oh, I should also mention, in order to give talks, I was invited to give a talk in Europe. i had started taking, I, recognizing that to, if I wanted to get off North America, I took sailing lessons on the, I mean, just on the harbor here. Sailing has taken on a whole new meaning for me. I've only been here and on the Long Island Sound because the pandemic hit. They had a sailboat set up for me. I was going to sail across. The pandemic hit, across the Atlantic, that is. Not by myself, but with others, with other being people being the skipper. It really changed my view. I, I, when I thought of sailing before, I thought of, this is like, What the Kennedys do, I didn't, it didn't occur to me that people have been doing for thousands and thousands of years. I spent much less money on the sailing lessons than I did on any flight. Going on the water has been, I might be only five miles or a couple miles from my home geographically, but it's been a tremendous experience. The cooking has really replaced a lot of the feeling, the need to go to other places. As for earning money, there's a couple of things. I changed how I earned my living and had to do things much more locally. I had the ability to do that. Of course, not everybody does. At no time did I decide I'm going to solve everyone's problems in the world all by myself overnight. One big thing has come to me is that, you know, I read The Power Broker. I'm not sure if people here are familiar with with Robert Moses and what happened there. I tend to think of cars as messing cities up, especially highways into cities. This analogy, if it makes sense to you, it makes sense to you. If it doesn't, I can try to explain it more. But I think of what cars do to cities, I think airplanes do to nations that is they, people don't want to live in the middle. They want to live at the ends and it, it guts out the middle part. So I'm not sure if that helps, if that answers your question. Oh, uh, there's another thing. I'm sorry. Um, I've also recognized that there's a lot of beauty in the world. One reason to travel is to see the Grand Canyon is to see, uh, not travel. I should, I don't want to confuse flying and travel. I can travel without flying. There's more beautiful things and more people for me to meet than I could possibly reach in one <sighs> lifetime. What I've learned is that my best strategy since I can't see everything is to enjoy what I can see maximally. Often that means what's right around me. Then when I find there's no limit to how much joy and discovery I can get around me. And then the need to travel decreases by a lot. It seems to be a lot, a lot of it being craving. I'm finding more and more near me. So sorry if I'm going on. Sorry. So no, worries.
1: I want to, I want to get on to, cause we have a
0: thing. Uh, Alison, you have a question as well.
1: Yes. Thanks. I was very interesting, very intrigued by your discussions that you've had with the mayor and key influencers that can influence the city, because we're we're basically trying to influence these people to make New York City more sustainable, drive it towards zero waste. I'm just wondering if, and I will watch your podcasts and TED Talks with the, Eric Adams and Ritt and those, Catherine Garcia, but I wondered if you could shed any light on what They did say to you, as far as what what role do they see that they can play? Are they committed to this for the city? Because they are in an incredible position. What do they want to see happen?
0: Where should I start? Eric and I, I don't know if you guys know about his food experience that he was uh, type two diabetic, and he switched to Whole Foods plant-based diet. We really talked mostly about that, that being something we could really bond on. And he sounded tremendously genuine about it. I think that he really wants to change food, especially in schools. I haven't followed it ex- exactly. I know there's pushback when he did vegan fr- vegetarian or vegan Fridays, which wasn't even vegetarian or vegan because they had the milk that was, I think, federally mandated. But he sounds to me genuine there. I, I think he took a black eye because he ordered fish, something like that. I have not reached him since he was elected. But talking with Ritt, Ritt is, I mean, he has been, since Bloomberg, very committed to cities being more sustainable. For him, it's much more climate than my read is he's much more about climate and carbon than litter and pollution and other types of, of pollution. But my read on him is that he's genuine and, and really passionate about it. Uh, the times that I've talked, he hasn't been on the podcast, but we've spoken. My read is that he's. last I spoke to him was a couple months ago. And I think he was still like building the team in order to move forward. He's learned a lot from experiences with Bloomberg. Banning cigarettes worked, the soda bottles didn't. How to make that work, I think is a big challenge for him. Eric Botcher, I think is incredibly genuine. I mean, I was out picking up litter. He was out picking up litter and he was bringing a whole lot of other people to do it. But that day when we were out there in February, I mean, it was snowing and it was a wet snow. It was miserable. And there were like half a dozen people out there. Yeah, he's doing it to to get votes to some degree, but I don't think you don't have to go out in February to get votes. And there weren't that many people there to make a voting difference. I think he really cared. Catherine Garcia inspired me. Her talking about the, the parks in the city prompted me to ride out to um, her favorite park, which is Great Gateway National Park, and have this great experience out there, which I could talk about, about picking berries and things like that. I haven't seen her much since the election, but I believe that she was genu- super genuine. I read her as, as very committed to this. I'm, I'm not sure what her role will end up being. I presume she'll be back in politics, but I don't know. Brad Hoyman, I live in Greenwich Village, not far from Washington Square Park. One of the things we talked about a lot was the litter in Washington Square Park, which is insanity and the drugs in Washington Square Park, which leads to yet more and just lots of other things there. But he's also, he very clearly sees this as, as I read it, as not just a bunch of individuals, it's a systemic effect. Just looking at the litter doesn't, it misses that there's a system at play. One of the things that I try to talk to him about is I, my dream about 20 years ago, when we banned cigarettes in the workplace and in bars and restaurants, the bars and restaurants all complained, anyone can go across the river and go to Hoboken We're going to lose business. This is bad for business. I'm not sure if people know what happened, but after a couple of years, Hoboken had to ban cigarettes because people were coming to Manhattan to avoid the smoke. Before they knew what clean was, they didn't know that they would prefer clean. People thought, well, you just want to drink after work and you want to smoke when you drink. Well, not when clean is an option. I believe that, I mean, I was walking by Washington Square Park one day and there was three French tourists. They're speaking French. I speak, speak a bit of French and they were walking past the Northwest corner and it was littered with garbage. One of them turns and says, "Me sé de golas," meaning that's disgusting. And I think of this in my backyard. My backyard, a casual observer who comes here wanting to see beauty, sees it as disgusting. And all around Washington Square, all around the city, people are selling lots of stuff that single-use packaging. No store that sells this stuff has trash cans. So I've been floating with them. At least have require them to have a trash can. Require them to have floor space devoted. To collecting what they produce. Now, I don't think that's. A, I, I really want. I foresee one day, you can't have plastic cups. You can't have or you know single use disposable things. I think that that would be a boon for business because people don't want to come to see disgusting things. They don't want to live. In, they don't want to come to a New York covered with garbage. And I think people are afraid that oh, if we can't sell Doritos, if we can't uh, give people to go everything. Then we're going to go out of business, and I, I don't think there's a. I don't think there's a chance of that. I think it's going to be the opposite. I try not to. I want to be productive. Have a have a, a two way relationship, but I also want to propose to them these ideas of mine. I don't know if uh, that's too long of an answer. Well, we're running short on time, so I just want to get one or two other questions in. And Sharon Silverman, you've been waiting patiently, so. Uh... Hi, Josh. I found
1: everything that you said extremely interesting, and I also sent you a note in the chat. But what would you be your prescription? For a society at large, in terms of goal as a solid waste advisory board is to have the biggest impact. And since you did things in sort of a methodical way, would you say your greatest impact was the first thing you did, you know, by food-free, food waste-free or package-free food? Is that what you'd subscribe to others as the first step to take? Or measuring your footprint first, so you have a, a scale, a measurement to go
0: by. There were a few questions there and most of them were uh, leadership related. And what I was doing was stumbling forward. Looking back now, I see that these were steps of continual improvement that followed this mindset shift that came from, oh, going without packaging actually improved my life. My leadership technique, and this really would be another talk entirely, but the core element of it is to start with the mindset shift, to start with switching from extrinsic motivation to intrinsic motivation. Virtually everything I see out there is here's one little thing you can do for the environment. Here's what happens at two degrees. Here's what happens at three degrees. Here's what happens the Pacific is full of of plastic. This is what you have to do. I'm not going to stop people from doing that. That will work with a lot of people. What I do is the leadership technique is to first connect people with their environmental values. The first thing is to act on that. In my case, I got lucky that the first thing I did was something that was based on my values and I found it rewarding. When I invite people to do things, When I first evoke what's meaningful for them about the environment, what's purposeful for them, their emotions related to the environment are, and connect those motivations, I invite them to come up with a task themselves. When they come up with it themselves, they do it because they want to. Big or small, it may not be big or small the first thing that they do, but when they do it, and you can listen to the podcast, when they come back for the second time, virtually every time, they do more than they expected. They enjoyed it in ways that they could not have predicted before they did, and they are open to doing more. So my strategy is to work with more and more influential people, people leverage points of systems so that if politicians, CEOs, celebrities, sports stars, people like that, people that others look up to, then we can leverage community to influence others. But the big shift is to switch from extrinsic to intrinsic motivations. That would be, to get into more detail on that, it would be another talk. I'm going to go to the last question, which is uh, Wendy Frank,
1: Hi there, Josh. In your building where you live, have you tried to change the culture with the property manager and the the supers? Because they're the ones, the other neighbors, tenants, co-op owners that you live around. Have you um, tried to engage them in, in your lifestyle?
0: Yes, with mixed success at best. I formed a sustainability committee years ago. They were open to that and the sustainability committee met. And we were talking about things like using lower power appliances and things like that but then we we decided to get composting in the building. The pandemic hit and that all stopped. During the pandemic, they were not really open to hearing things. Now they've seen me carrying or putting the solar panel up on the roof. I was kind of worried they might object to it. They didn't. The super, I had to talk to him about where I could put it because I'd leave it up there sometimes unwatched and he we worked together to find a place to put it where it's safe and where- um... this is not like a
1: co-op because you'd have to
0: get that approved. this is a portable thing. So it's like designed for camping. So I can just leave it up there. But I I think they're open to, they're definitely open to one day I want to put up some gardening up there. And they're starting to, I I think I can talk to them about putting some solar up there first as a test, but that hasn't been my main focus. They're somewhat open to it.
1: Okay. And the property management, because they could, they're with the messaging when they send out their monthly uh, maintenance and rental notices have you, you can get what kind of engagement have you done with your property management
0: i have not engaged with them much on this so i can't speak up okay. too much to that gonna...
1: companies are like the key to they're the management company of the building if they want to create a greener building they should they usually own multiple buildings they're part of the real estate industry so like if we engage them and one building is a success then it can move on to other buildings
0: right so i, I think we're going to have to cut cut it here, only because we're at the top of the hour. We've got a tremendous amount of business to get through. I wanted to say thank you, Josh, uh, for
1: spending the time with us. And I think this was a real eye-opener.